Leading Corporate Transformation. Der Podcast der WHU Otto Beisheim School of Management. Powered by PwC. Zur Transformation von Unternehmen und ihrer Kultur. Von Entscheidern für Entscheider. Oder von Unternehmern für Unternehmer. Welcome to the WHO podcast leading corporate transformation powered by PwC. My name is Martin Klaum. I'm a professor of international accounting at the WHO Otto Beisheim School of Management and I'm one of the hosts of this podcast series. We're back again. This is the first time we meet in the new year 2022 and uh, we look forward very, very much to uh, new and exciting stories to present to you. With me is uh, Gori von Hirschhausen, partner at PwC, and I hand over to you, Gori. Thank you, Martin. Hello, everybody. A warm welcome to our listeners also from my end. So uh, I hope some of you already know me, but uh, for those who don't know me, my name is Gori von Hirschhausen. I'm a partner in PwC, leading our management consulting practice. And um, as a consultant, my job is to support companies on their transformation journey. And this is why my focus for our talk today is to talk about the corporate transformation of Springer and how this translates into the work of the CFO. And this brings me to our guest today. We are very honored and privileged to have Dr. Julian Deutz, the CFO of Springer, with us today. Julian, welcome to our podcast. Yes, uh, thank you, Gori and Martin. Thanks a lot for, for having me here and thanks a lot for coming over to, uh, to Berlin. Julian, would you be so kind to introduce yourself and uh, also explain a little bit about Springer to our listeners, who Springer is? Yeah, I'm um, Julian Deutz, 53 years old, live in Berlin for the last uh, 20 years with uh, my wife and four children. Um, and I joined Axel Springer in 2004 when actually Axel Springer was more or less a German print publishing house. And by today, and we will uh, talk a lot about that, I guess, uh, we were able to transform really the company into a 80% digital company, uh, international company today. Roughly Axel Springer, think about it as a three and a half billion revenue company highly profitable 16,000 uh, uh, employees of which roughly half are working outside of Germany. So this means uh, in a nutshell that Axel Springer is really a prime example for our podcast, which is about transformation. This is really a, uh, a very exciting transformation story that you look back to. As you mentioned, until the early 2000s, let's say roughly two decades ago, Springer was largely a media and print company. Right? We're, with the most well-known newspaper Bildzeitung at its core, but also other news uh, papers, regional and national magazines, and a little bit of TV already, I think. But over the last decade, especially very stringently and with a lot of concentration, you transformed this company into a digital company, sold a lot of newspaper uh, activities, and uh, and as you say, 80% of your revenues today come from digital businesses. What triggered this massive um, and maybe in some ways unprecedented uh, transformation? Who was behind it? Who drove that? I think the most important factor is our CEO who uh, came to office in, in 2002. He was quite young and uh, one could argue, did he really have the right background? He was an editor. He was even by education 
music scientist. Um, and uh, he clearly said from day one, and he said that in a company that was doing whatever, 99.5% in print, he said, uh, our only future is uh, the internet. And uh, if we think back, at least uh, those of us who, who already had a very active or even professional life at that time, in 2002, uh, the first internet bubble had just burst. Uh, people thought, oh, this internet stuff is over. We are over with that and we are going back to, to a normal economy. And uh, so they had nothing like this new economy. And he really said, hey, everything we do now will die. We don't know when it will die, but it will die. And unless we really change our business model, we will not survive. And that was a very uh, powerful message, not understood from day one by, by everybody. But I think this message was a main, uh, uh, the main driver for us to, to go onto this roughly, whatever, 15 to 20 year journey. What a story, how daring. Right? So this young guy comes in, he has these ideas in a time when the bubble had just burst, as you point out, right? After the euphoric times of the 1990s, we were back to earth. And he says that, and the company went along with it. I mean, it, it, it took a couple of years till it really took off to be, uh, uh, to be completely transparent. Um, but he says that from day, uh, from day one, but uh, obviously there was a lot of resistance because uh, as in each and every company, those of uh, the managers that were uh, in charge of the most important and most prof profitable divisions, which was again, I mean, everything was print, there was regional newspapers and built. They didn't really want to, want to hear that and they probably didn't really understand that. Uh, and... Um, It, I think things really took off when we did the first uh, larger digital acquisition, which was Idealo. Price comparisons uh, basically have their offices now in this very building where we are sitting here and doing this podcast. And um, then we had for the first time within the management team or the broader like top 100 group, whatever the jeans and t-shirts uh, uh, guys and Axel Springer was a super conservative. I mean, 20 years ago, super conservative, um, founded in Hamburg, you know, blue, uh, blue suits, uh, obviously everybody wearing a tie and so on, quite a little bit political, patriarchal uh, company. And then this culture shift started to, e to evolve, but it took, again, I mean, we haven't done that in five years. It took roughly whatever, 15 to 20 years. I mean, you, you mentioned before that it's not just about being a digital publishing, uh, let's say, platform or company. Uh, you also said that you are way more international than you have been in the past. The question is, how much does this needs to go along together to become very digital and turn into a more international company? What would you say? How important is it that you go both Both passes. Yeah. First of all, uh, we when we when we looked at the kind of DNA of uh, of Axel Springer, that is obviously journalism, and we will always do journalism. But journalism in print, at some point in time, we don't know when, but it will it, it will die finally. Um, and our idea was from from day one, journalism will survive, but it will look different in the in the digital age, and. Um, We also found out over time that the, that the German language uh, is nice and it's spoken by whatever 80 million people in Germany and some in Austria and Switzerland, but this limits you. So with Build, we were already uh, 
number one 10 years ago in, in digital reach in Germany. But to monetize that, we found out that this is simply not enough to turn the whole company around. So we said we have to move into the English language uh, uh, when it comes to, uh, to journalism because simply there we can basically address Uh, whatever, more than a billion uh, people and not just uh, 80 million. And that's what we did with the first steps to the US in 2014. And now uh, we just did the largest uh, acquisition that this company has ever done with the uh, acquisition of Politico in, in Washington, D.C. And looking to the, let's say, digital inspiration, how much came from outside of the German-speaking countries. So was it a combination of having more people from the outside bringing also more digital ideas? Have they been further on the road, more maturity in digital questions that you found in other uh, territories? In general, uh, with ev every acquisition uh, we did, we did not only gain ideally a good management team and a profitable business model and a value-creating uh, entity, but also... We increase, obviously, the overall digital know-how in the company. First, just step by step, and then always it got more, more powerful. And I think from most acquisitions that we did, if not from all of them, uh, we really benefited also in some other areas because we just got, as you said, Gori, we just got inputs and insights, an even better network, and so on. We also decided, I think it was in 2014, when we did two big steps, we sold our, uh, as you mentioned, Martin, we sold our regional newspapers, which was a very heritage of the company. Hamburger Abendblatt was founded by Axel Springer himself, the first title. Uh, so very emotional uh, thing. And we started to send people uh, to Silicon Valley. Uh, because in a, in a management board offsite, uh, we thought Axel Springer, about what he had done in our position now, And we said, yeah, he would probably would have invented the next Facebook. Then we said, okay, we probably uh, won't uh, succeed to do that. But uh, then we said, okay, let's really go where innovation is. And I know now 10 years later, everybody, every business sends people to, to the valley. And it's, it's a little bit like a tourism uh, uh, activity. It was different 10 years ago. Uh, and we sent even some of our most important people Uh, for a couple of months there, so that they also could connect themselves to the to the ecosystem there, build their networks, and all that I think helped bringing digital ideas really into a what was a little bit of an old-fashioned company uh, uh, until the the early 2000s. Hmm. So you mentioned the first big transaction, Idealo. You mentioned the most recent one, which really uh, again changes your structure a little bit with political, uh, but. You have done a whole string of transactions over the last 15 years or so. Um, my question is, you know, the market for such young and digital companies is not easy. You know, if the companies are already established, if they have a proven business model, they are very highly, extremely highly valued. Right? And uh, if they are young, on the other hand, they are extremely risky. You don't know what, uh, you know, how, how it will develop. So how do you do that? Uh, at which stage do you go in and buy? And then what are your criteria um, to select businesses uh, that you ultimately invest money in? First of all, um, uh, Axel Springer is uh, always was a little bit of a, a family company or family business. Friede Springer uh, was for a long time until recently a 50% shelter. Uh, Frida has her office on, on our floor. We see her, so we never, with any decision, wanted and, and have not put the company at risk. So we clearly said, hey, whatever we do, even if we are totally convinced today, it can prove wrong in whatever one, two or three years out. So that was a kind of a little bit of a portfolio thinking, but was really 
to, to limit at least uh, risk. Then when we started to build this digital business or the digital portfolio, uh, prices were obviously uh, more normal uh, than they are currently. Yeah? So we did that, uh, at the, as I said, starting in 2006. Uh, so there was definitely an advantage. To, to, to repeat the whole story today is more difficult. And I think we took a good mixture of businesses that are just at least have a proof of business, so they have revenues and we know they would turn into profitability very soon. At the very beginning, we simply said, let's uh, only acquire profitable businesses. After a while, we said, hey, this is not the right approach. But we did it really step by step. And I think we, we always knew that we don't know everything. Yeah? And so we, we did it in steps. We never said it's the ultimate goal, whatever, to increase the value of the company by a factor of 10 in five years or some crazy stuff. But we always, I think, were very aware of the, of the heritage of Axel Springer, of the role of Axel Springer uh, in, in the German uh, uh, media landscape and, and really took a aggressive, or but, but not too aggressive uh, strategy there, if that makes sense. Looking at your portfolio, what would you say? What are the most innovative business ideas that, that you are invested in? What's in your portfolio where you would say this is really something very innovative, uh, looking out uh, into a bright future, not yet there where, where some of our uh, established businesses but having a good, uh, let's say, perspective for the future. Great question. It's, it's interestingly, it's, it's not the most important businesses probably because uh, the most important businesses from a financial point of view are the, the online classifieds businesses, jobs and, uh, and, and real estate. Um, but they are effectively a mix out of, uh, you could say, a classical sales-driven business and a digital platform. Uh, but probably the one I would mention or that comes into my mind is, is, is Upday where we are basically aggregating more than 1,000 different journalistic uh, sources and giving a personalized offer to the users. We've spread that out in many, many countries with just small local editorial teams, something we just started totally from scratch. In contrast to, to the acquisitions that we normally do, uh, this was the first time we really relied also on our own technical uh, expertise that we can really develop a completely new business model. So that's definitely something we are we are proud of, I would say. Mm, as you already said, uh, you know, when you do that, these investments are inherently very risky and you don't know what the future will bring. Looking back, can you identify mishaps, really mistakes, and uh, could you draw lessons from them? Is there anything that you say, you know, if you are in such a type of portfolio reshuffle, this is something you should really avoid or this is something we learned from that? What we in, in, in general found out uh, is that the, the strong focus that we had from kind of day one, because we always knew in, in, in the international perspective with roughly 3 billion revenues, we are not a super big player. Uh, we always focused basically on news media and on classifieds. We, we already, if you would look to, to strategy charts in 2007 and 2008, you would already find that. Um, and we found out obviously the more you've already done in this in a certain area, the, the less risky additional acquisitions are. So any kind of add-on acquisitions for a kind of buy-and-build strategy is definitely less risky than to open up something completely new. We also found out that this combination of a completely new business model and a completely new market is super difficult, at least for a company of our size. So we tried either with the same business model, go into new geographies. If you change the business model, stay in a geography that you, that you know well, most likely Germany. 
So I don't know whether that makes immediate sense what I'm saying now, but is that because the, the new business, uh, you know, already builds on what you have operationally and therefore benefits? Or is it because you have learned to understand the market and the mechanism? It's a letter. We have, uh, we have learned to understand the, the market. We had an interesting um, uh, experience. One was an acquisition, which was at that time the most expensive acquisition in terms of EBITDA multiples we've, we've ever done. It was, it was in Israel. And uh, the reason why we could could acquire that business was really because we went there with all our experts from, from continental Europe and during the due diligence process could really find out what were uh, the levers that we really could pull, how could we increase prices, is it really under-monetized. So we bought it for a high multiple, but then tripled EBITDA over the next uh, three years. And that's simply a good, uh, probably a good example that know-how is really... Uh, uh, is super helpful. In general, I would say the fact that we have a lot of continuity on not only on top management level, Matthias Döpfner, our CEO, is, uh, uh, is still the same CEO than the one I, I talked about and uh, who was uh, kicking that off in, in 2002. But for example, also our head of M&A, uh, that's the same person for 15 years. So we've gone through mistakes together and I think we always sat very openly together and discussed it, hey, Why haven't we found that out earlier? Or why? what have we got wrong? Was it something wrong in whatever, wrong management team? Or was the acquisition from day one too expensive? Uh, and I think this helped us. A uh, very important question, of course, always is, how much do I integrate companies, new business models into the corporate structure of a bigger group? Um, What would you say? How is there a, a certain logic that you follow? How much you integrate to leave this? Because you also refer to the entrepreneurial spirit that that is driving Springer for forever from from Axel Springer himself. But how do you keep it in this in this environment and at the same time as being the CFO, having a certain level of corporate directive? Especially in the early days, we had a team uh, with a. Nice name, Geschäftsführungsbereich Elektronische Medien. Sounds in German, I can just <laughs> wow. tell the English speakers. Super, super old-fashioned today. Electronic Media Department. Um, they had, I mean, officially they had the job to develop the portfolio, to find targets and so on. But their real value was they protected the asset from all our nice colleagues in corporate headquarters, from auditors and controllers and the legal people. And we really said uh, at the beginning... The, uh, the, the, the reason for, uh, for failed acquisitions is often that uh, integration means you basically kill the entrepreneurial spirit. And we always had the idea, I mean, this company that we acquired, uh, Idealo, had at that time 40 or 50 employees, and we had at that time, whatever, 10,000. And we said, if we come with all our power, even if... Uh, Uh, it was super interesting for our people to go there. Everybody wanted to go to Idealo. And we really said, no, you're even not allowed to go there because if only whatever, every fifth employee wants to go there once and wants to have a tour through the company and wants to talk to the founders, they won't do anything else for the next uh, two years and then uh, we'll ruin the company. So we really said we only do the absolute minimum of integration that we need. And indeed, as you, uh, you mentioned that, that is finance because it was always clear we were for a long time a listed company. We need it on, uh, uh, on day three in the new month. We needed uh, uh, final numbers. So they always had to deliver the financial data 
and also exactly in the timeline and uh, deadline that we gave them. But with everything else, they were very independent and we always had this idea of this kind of cafeteria principle where you can take whatever you want from the big corporate, but you don't have to take anything. It also had disadvantages, but in, in hindsight, this is probably one of the big uh, success factors for Axel Springer. Yeah. Uh, so interesting to talk about your portfolio management. I think uh, what we learned is that you started very early with investing in this kind of business models, which are pretty pretty pricey, as Martin uh, was mentioning nowadays. So, and as you said, you it's it's not that easy to repeat this story nowadays. So there we can see again early movers have a certain advantage in this in this way of transforming their their organization. But maybe changing the topic, coming uh, more maybe to look at your going private, um, we are very interested, of course, what were the reasons for going private? And then when you went private, you were also being helped uh, by KKR, who is a co-investor in your, in your company. Uh, so maybe you can tell us also what's the story behind this and how, how you work together, how you develop now Springer. So first question, <laughs> why you, you went uh, private? And second, uh, how is the work with KKR and how you convinced them to invest into Springer? So let's maybe uh, try to answer that. I'll start the answer with a, with a short anecdote. We on the management board were already for quite some time frustrated that the institutional investors on the capital markets did not really value organic investments uh, uh, well enough. We always got nice credit for acquisitions because that was part of our success story. But whenever we came to the market and said, hey, EPS grows, EBITDA grows will be a little bit lower because we take whatever 20 million and invest in this in this business, that was seen as, as difficult and distracting. And analysts said, ah, but I thought and I've given guidance in, in this direction. So, uh, and that came to a to a phase where uh, where we basically said, hey, if it would be our own business, so the four of us on the management board, we would probably do things different, and that's that's frustrating. And then, and now I come to the to the short anecdote. Matthias Döfner, CEO, and I, we were having a capital markets day in in, in London. We were presenting record revenues and record EBITDA. Yeah? And at the end, we were saying, yes, and next year in our real estate uh, classifieds portals, we'll invest probably around uh, 25 million. That's probably not in your plans. And we haven't given guidance on that so far because that's a new development. And this is what we want to do with that. And that will accelerate growth. At the end, we had like 45 minutes Q&A. 30 minutes were on this 25 million investment and with a total negative connotation. Matthias and I were sitting uh, in the car back to the airport for, and it takes in, in, in London uh, always a long time, at least in pre-corona times, uh, 90 minutes. And we were both typically frustrating. We said, hey, this, is, this does not make any sense. Yeah? Either they don't understand it, so the investors or analysts, or we are too stupid to explain, but this is something that doesn't feel good. That was, I guess, on December 8 or 9 in 2018, One week later, we kicked off what was called internally Project Heritage and said, okay, we want to find, we want to see whether we can find an investor. And the task that we set ourselves is that we said, we will draw up a plan in which we believe what we would do if it would be our own business. And then there are only uh, two alternatives. Either we find a private equity investor who buys into that, and then we can take the company private and implement these plans or we don't find anybody, and then we have to be honest, then our plans are 
not good enough, and then we should probably follow the strict rules of the capital market. But this is very interesting what you are saying, Julian, because there is this uh, very famous quote which comes from Henry Crevis, one of the co-founders of KKR. And he was saying that private equity started uh, holding companies accountable and uh, to make managers start thinking like owners. So my question is, like you are describing it, you were feeling like very entrepreneurial in what you were doing and getting more entrepreneurial power for yourself. Is that one of the reasons why K you were able to convince KKR? Because you are already there, what, what Henry Kravis was saying, PE brings to corporate, to corporate world? Yeah, I think there was definitely one factor, uh, probably in addition to obviously our uh, hopefully good track record. And as always in due diligence, you find good surprises, you find some things that look maybe not as good as you thought from the outside. But KKR clearly said, we want to back that this management team and these businesses, and, and we believe in that. And so... Here we are. So how can we envisage that today? You know, private equity, traditionally at least, uh, is, uh, you know, their approach is to take companies over completely and to do that in order to subsequently change things and change them in a fundamental way, structurally, and also in the operations. And, you know, especially in the first uh, years or so, they have bi-weekly reporting and very, very drilling down in all. Do they do that? Do they watch you so completely and do they, you know, talk to you about all sorts of KPIs every day? Yeah, KKR has done now a couple of minority investments in uh, in Germany. I think they have, uh, in a way, uh, uh, experienced that this also can be a, a very value-creating uh, and attractive uh, approach for them. Um, when you compare Axel Springer with other targets, at least of the European activities of KKR, we are relatively large company. We were, uh, by the way, at that time, uh, the largest uh, tech private uh, Germany had ever seen. Um, and obviously, with this size of Axel Springer, uh, there goes a certain professionalism. So the feedback that we got after one year was, hey, uh, in average, the companies we invest in are significantly less professional than you are. And this is why many things that we normally do, we didn't need to do here. Yeah. But what we have and what is uh, uh, contributing to the value of, of, uh, of Axel Springer is a very constructive and in times very intense dialogue, super open, yeah. uh, very to the point. Uh, it's, it's, it's still polite, but we really clearly say and get feedback what we believe is right and what we believe is wrong. So uh, we are all in a way united or aligned as Owners, so the top 100 people are in a way feeling and are incentivized like owners. Uh, that helps. And I would say the most fundamental change was that the management board plus the like, top 100 uh, executive do not look so much on quarterly and annual results. Quarterly results don't play a role at all any longer. And with everything that we do, uh, and that's something that in theory sounds easy, but that was not in our, in, in our DNA before KKR joined us, we really now think whatever we do is this increasing value over a five-year uh, horizon. And now out of this roughly five years, two years are already over. So we look at always roughly 2025, whether that at the end is 26 or 27, doesn't matter. But that, uh, this uh, view 
in terms of value creation and not in terms of what is my EBITDA gui guidance and what is EPS and what is the, the tax ratio, but really look, this investment, if I invest in build life, so the television activities of build, will that over five years create value? And if so, let's do it. We are so much faster than we were at the capital markets because we always had this fear. We always want to avoid as every CFO and every management team a profit warning. So that means if somebody comes in May and says, hey, Julian, I have a great idea, but I need whatever, 50 million. We would have said, hey, that's whatever, 8% of our profits. Uh, we cannot give it to you in terms of OPEX to diminish EBITDA. If you have that today, we say, hey, if it's a great idea, present it to us. If we on the management board believe it's the right idea, we give it to our shareholders. And the whole thing is a process of four to six weeks. And then we are we can do things. And that's also totally not only motivating for us, but also super motivating for, for our teams. Absolutely. I do I do fully believe that this is very inspiring. But coming back to your CFO role, and I'm pretty sure that uh You still have direct interaction with KKR and they were asking, of course, also at, at short notice, certain information they want to get. So just give us a little kind of an impression. How do you work with KKR on this? Uh, how much questions do they have? What kind of questions you might sometimes also say, this is something uh, I, I don't answer because we, we, we look at this long term. So maybe you have some results where you can show a case uh, that, that you also uh, kind of educated your, your investors. Yeah, I mean, overall, the, the role of the CFO when, uh, in terms of communications to shareholders changes drastically between a public and a private company, and I experienced that. So in a, in, a, in a public setting, basically, there's one CFO talking to whatever, one or 200 institutional investors in a rather shallow way because the typical investors meeting is, is 45 minutes. So given our uh, relatively broad portfolio, in 45 minutes, you never get uh, super deep. Here, it's totally different. You have basically one shareholder, actually with CPPIB, that's a Canadian pension fund. We have a second one that is combined with, with KKR and, and Axel Springer. Um, but basically, you have one or two investors talking to the CFO very intensely with obviously more time, but also talking to the heads of our most important operations. So there are simply more people now doing investor communication, if you will, than before. But I have obviously probably the, the, the single most uh, intense contact with, uh, with KKR, which is uh, simply part of, of the role. So I'm talking to my shareholders each and not each and every day, but definitely each and every week and probably exchanging emails Not all the time, but very often. I believe what, what PE is doing, and that's totally fair, they put your organization, especially the finance organization at the beginning, uh, in a little bit of, of, of a test mode. They want to find out what can this organization deliver, how professional are they, how fast are they with any data that we need, how accurate is that data. And from all what we heard, and we cannot obviously not praise ourselves here, that was very satisfactory for our shareholders. So you see that some things are easing after a certain time. Uh, and I guess that's, uh, I mean, I would uh, follow the same approach if I were in their shoes. Hmm. Yeah, makes sense. Let's for just a quick moment come back to the digital transformation with all these acquisitions you've done over the last uh, 10, 15 years. What is your role as a CFO there? I mean, naturally, you will be involved in the financial aspects, divestments, acquisitions, the money, you know, needs to come from somewhere and so on. Uh, but to which degree are you also involved in the strategy that is behind that and in the, uh, in, the, in the selection of the companies and the criteria you use for that? 
Yeah. I'm very much involved in that. And I'm, I'm working uh, there with our CEO and my board colleagues uh, very intensely because effectively when we were listed, I was the one who was in a way transmitting and communicating this strategy to our shareholders. I was doing whatever, 90% of our investors meeting without the CEO and obviously the most important ones the CEO did uh, together with me. And while, uh, as we just uh, discussed, uh, communication mode has changed a bit, this has not changed That's the CFO, and I believe that's uh, a prerequisite for, for a successful CFO, is uh, at the table when we discuss uh, the strategy, when we believe what is the right target for our job platforms or for our news media business. Um, and is not only delivering flawless uh, execution, that's, that's a, in a way what you always have to do, but uh, is an important and integral part of the strategy discussion. You were saying you are, of course, in this role asking for information, you are asking for numbers. The same is true for KKR, asking you for numbers and uh, all other owners. So my question is, how much is it just uh, a push of a button? How much do you invest in to digitization of your back office processes and your finance processes to provide these numbers and to have uh, your your finance people focusing more on insights than on transactions? Yeah, the, the idea that we have, and this goes uh, together with the approach that I uh, mentioned a couple of minutes ago, that we said we need like financial data uh, in the way we uh, we require them, but we don't want to interfere uh, much into the business of our digital units. And this is why we said, hey, this is the financial data that we need. If you do that with SAP in your unit or whether you do it with whatever Workday or some other tools, honestly, we don't care as long as this data is there on whatever this date at this time in this format. Then on, uh, like in the holding or in, in, in headquarters, we uh, uh, invested a lot in super integrated systems. We invested a lot in a, in a fast close procedure. So we know now whatever on January 5, what is the result of the old year across now whatever more than 200 companies that we fully consolidate. So that is a super professional, fully integrated system. Uh, there's only one truth and the truth is with headquarter controlling period. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if somebody asks what's the growth rate of Stepstone, this is the one source that we need and that is determining all the external or also internal, uh, in a way, communication and analysis. And there's not the thing like, oh, yeah, they, they look at this EBITDA, but we look at this and we don't know what's right. There we are kind of strict. But how they, how the units uh, organize that, that's up to them. Obviously, if we see that it's super inefficient, then we, uh, then we push them. To, uh, to do it in a, in a better way. But we have uh, invested in digitization uh, and in fully integrated processes quite a bit uh, over, the last, over the last decade, I would say. So your activities are very diverse. You still have the traditional uh, you know, print media, Bild Zeitung, of course, and, and the Welt. You have internet media like Politico. You have um, advertising platforms, but you also have financial portal. It's a whole range of things. How do you manage and uh, how do you control and how do you steer such a conglomerate? Are there uh, uniform reporting requirements for all of the businesses? Do you have um, uh, uniform KPIs that apply to all of them or is it diverse by business? 
we have unified uh, financial uh, reporting requirements. We don't have unified KPIs because, as you say, whatever for a Bill Zeitung, at least for the print part, you need different KPIs than for a purely digital uh, classifieds business, for example. This looks from the outside a little bit more complicated uh, than from from the inside, I guess, because what we do, obviously, we have uh, we have different segments. Uh, then within these segments, you have a kind of substructure. So it is it is not that difficult to get on whatever within. If you see the monthly report, to get a very good view over the first two minutes whether this was a good month and where are the problems. There we have super professional. Uh, uh, controlling colleagues and controlling uh, uh, mechanisms and really find out extremely fast where there could be problems. And in the past, obviously, we did we did wrong management decisions as uh, uh, everybody else, I guess. But what we never had is over the last 15 years, wrong or materially wrong financial information so that whatever people thought until July or August, this business is on a good way and then something happens, they had to correct numbers. This is simply not happening. Therefore, we are uh, luckily so uh, much too professional. So you know, that sounds very promising. Uh, I think uh, we could talk for hours on all these topics. And of course, I can tell you a lot of CFOs would be very interesting to learn how you uh, ensure this, uh, this good and strict way of uh, reporting and having digitization being applied in the finance process. But uh, looking at the time, let's come to our final, let's say, questions we have. So um, you are one of the first WHU alumni that uh, that come from <laughs> That's the a good question. Auto, Auto school, right? Point. So uh, let us know, at that time, what, what made you uh, take the decision to go to this, at that time, pretty small university? And what would you say? What, what was it that you learned there that maybe is still very present in your daily life of today? Yeah, I always wanted to do something with business or economics. My, my parents were both medical doctors and I knew already at the age, I think, of 10 or 12 that I never wanted to do that. I was simply not uh, uh, not interested. And at that time, uh, public universities were super crowded because it was basically this baby boomer generation. I'm born in 68 and there were all these stories from you. You don't even see your professor and if you whatever... Uh, If you don't get into this class, you have to wait a year longer to, to get into that. So in, in the even obviously very good public university systems, it was simply overcrowded. This was not super attractive. It was a very national model at that time. And then the first uh, private business schools really evolved with a promise of uh, small groups, direct contact to the professor and an international exchange, which was which is normal now, but which was not at that time. And that was something that uh, a couple of schools um, uh, could offer. Uh, and actually, I took some time and really went from whatever, St. Gallen to Reutling to, uh, to WHU in Koblenz uh, and uh, looked at them. And then I applied only at WHU, Martin, I have to say. And uh, <laughs> I was accepted and very happy uh, to be so. And I've never regretted that for a single second. A good decision, yeah. we, we would say. Last question, Martin. Uh, yep. Uh, well, maybe last But one, uh, I would like to add one more question concerning the career because I think that's very interesting. You, uh, after a brief stint in consultancy, you joined Steilmann, a textile group, and you assumed at a very young age, very quickly, uh, you know, um, positions of uh, some significance. You, you joined them as head of finance, basically, and later on uh, as uh, the CFO. At that time, they were already in uh, in financial 
difficulties. Uh, I think that's uh, fair to say. So how did this come about, this relatively early you know, uh, position of importance? And what, were, what are things that you have taken from this? My first project manager in con in consulting, he was uh, he was a crazy guy, and he was uh, leaving then consultancy to become managing director of Stallman. And he basically gave me a call a couple of weeks later and said, "Hey, this is a crazy company here. Nobody knows even how many subsidiaries they have. They don't know what. Uh, they didn't have a consolidated balance sheet." Uh, the banks are making it difficult because they want to have real data and they don't get it and business is going down. Interesting. I need your uh, uh, I need your help. And then I met with him a couple of times and I always, uh, when I knew that I didn't want to do uh, anything with, uh, with medical stuff, uh, I wanted to understand how really a business functions. Uh, and honestly, I mean, I loved consultancy, but in a in a consultancy, I wouldn't say that you really learn that too much. So I wanted to go in a in, in a real business, uh, and that's what it was. And I was there like in two different stages, like roughly six years uh, altogether. And there's so many things that I've now in a kind of executive position that I know, like whatever one or two levels below me, people are dealing with. I was dealing during that time myself. And that is super valuable because, uh, honestly, in a good mid-sized company, German Mittelstand, you really learn things from scratch and it's not super fancy. And the businesses where the headquarter was basically on a big parking lot in uh, uh, Wattenscheid West at the uh, A40, which is the most crowded highway uh, Germany has to offer. But you really learn things uh, uh, from scratch and you're so close to what really drives a business and how a finance function works or doesn't work. So uh, in hindsight, that were not the easiest, probably the most difficult, but the most, in a way, exciting uh, years of my, of my professional career, I would say. It sounds like it. So we have a tradition to close this podcast with one question that we ask All very the important partners, question, a very important question, and that is whether you have a book recommendation to our listeners. I learned, you know, I have to say, I may add that, that you are quite, have quite a reputation as a as a, a man of the books, and that you can uh, that people listen to your recommendations. Uh, do you have a good recommendation for our listeners? I hope I have a good recommendation. It's a book that I read shortly uh, uh, after Christmas. It's called Berlin 1936, Berlin 1936, and describes Berlin over the 16 days of the Olympic Summer Games in 1936. Oh, okay. And uh, it's not a real documentary. It's 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 uh, basically uh, it's different stories that go into each other. If anybody has read Florian Illy's 1913, which is more popular at least in Germany, uh, it's a little bit that style, and you get a a really cohesive and uh, super interesting picture of how Berlin during these 16 days ha has looked and how the atmosphere was. And it was obviously the Nazis already quite strong. People knew about concentration camps already existing, whatever, just 40 or 50 kilometers out of the city. On the other hand, everybody trying to uh, make Berlin look as a very cosmopolitan, very open Uh, a city because that obviously what the what the Hitler government wanted to to create this impression, and during that they they, they tell stories of of individuals who have whatever be it a cafe or a bar at Kurfürstendamm or 
uh, in this area. And this in, in, in total is really a very dense, um, in a way, atmosphere. You really, if you read that, you really feel uh, you've been there. Sounds very interesting. Yeah. Oliver Hilmes is the author. And being there uh, is, I think, the perfect phrase for today. We <laughs> have been with you with the Springer story, with your portfolio, with your daily job as a CFO. It was really, as I said in the beginning, it was an honor. It was a privilege to meet you, Julian, and to have this talk. Um, I do believe we might want to make it a chance to talk to you again one day and make another podcast. So we hope that you take this invite again and thank you so much for today and your, your input and, and your time today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Invite already accepted and it was a pleasure. Thanks, Gori. Perfect. And Wonderful. This was probably the longest or is probably the longest podcast we've done so far. Uh, I can say that, but I think it's uh, completely justified with the super interesting story we had. Uh, my thanks also, also, you know, a super interesting partner to talk to with uh, um, Julian, uh, many thanks. And thanks to you listeners uh, for listening in. And we hope to meet with you again very, very soon. Looking forward. Thank you. Goodbye. Thanks, everybody. Das war Leading Corporate Transformation. Ein Podcast der WHU Otto Beisheim School of Management. Powered by PwC. Redaktion PwC. Britta Bormuth und Marvin Rothmann. Produziert in den ChemWeb Digital Studios. <Musik>